Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear, page by page. This is page 367. Chapter 53, The Shear. I limped through the gates of Severin, ragged, penniless, and hungry. I am no stranger to hunger. I know the countless hollow shapes it takes inside you. This particular hunger wasn't a terrible one. I'd eaten two apples and some salt pork a day ago, so this hunger was merely painful. It wasn't the bad hunger that leaves you weak and trembling. I was safe from that for at least eight hours or so. Over the last two span, everything I owned had been lost, destroyed, stolen, or abandoned. The only exception was my loot. Denna's marvelous case had paid for itself ten times during my trip. In addition to saving my life on one occasion, it had protected my loot. Thrape's letter of introduction and Nina's invaluable drawing of the Chandrian. You may notice I don't include any clothing on my list of possessions. There are two good reasons for this. The first is that you couldn't really call the grubby rags I wore clothing without stretching the truth to its breaking point. Secondly, I had stolen them, so it doesn't seem right to claim them as my own. The most irritating was the loss of Fella's cloak. I had been forced to tear it up and use it for bandages in Junpoi. Nearly as bad was the fact that my hard-won gram now lay somewhere deep below the cold, dark waters of the Senthe Sea. The city of Severin was split into two unequal portions by a tall white cliff. The majority of the living business of the city took place in the larger portion of the city at the foot of this cliff, aptly named the Shear. Atop the Shear was a much smaller piece of the city. It consisted mostly of the end of the page! My name is Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. So let's get this out of the way. I'm sure we'll talk about this tomorrow, but Rothfuss really loves his fantasy cities where the haves and the have-nots are uh, separated by geography, where there's like a visual uh, metaphor for the wealthy neighborhoods and the poor neighborhoods. Is there not a bit of a uh, like historical significance to that though? Like, wouldn't that make sense if... Like, if you were a rich person in the Middle Ages, you would want your house to be maybe higher up on a hill because then it's less likely to be flooded. I honestly don't know. I don't know enough about history to know. I just know that the the metaphor is is consistent here. There's now two cities where the have and the have-nots are separated by a distinct geological feature. Geographical feature? Like, the term uptown normally, I feel like, has referred to the upper classes and uptown seems like a place that would be on a hill because it's up. And I think it, it depends on the city. Like in, in New York city and Manhattan, they literally mean like the North side of the city is uptown versus downtown. And that means something different here in Toronto. And in New York, like uptown gets you into like Harlem and then the Bronx, which are not historically well to do neighborhoods. I mean, I wasn't really thinking of, of like North America. I was sort of thinking of like Britain or something (laughs) like, or Europe somewhere. In in London, for example, which is like, you know, the biggest city in the United Kingdom by a considerable margin, all the wealthiest and most powerful people have their residences basically in the center of the city. And the farther out from the center of the city and the River Thames you go, the the less 
affluent the the neighborhoods are. Mm. But I think you're right, Jordana, in that it's always been the case that the wealthy and powerful separate themselves from the lower classes. But I think that what Nick is pointing out is that in this city in particular, and in Tarbian, those divides are helped by by like a useful geological or geographical marker. In Tarbian, it's the river. In in this city, it's like a literal cliff. In cities in the real world, it's like the the rich people have like a neighborhood and they built a wall around it. Yeah, here in Toronto, the nice neighborhoods are sort of like oases in the middle of the city. They're sort of peppered throughout. There's no one geographical feature that they tend to glom around. There's just some areas that are nicer and some that aren't so much. I mean, you could make an argument, I think, for the fact that Forest Hill and Rosedale are both uh, bordering on... Green space? Yeah, I suppose. But, like, North American cities are almost a different kettle of fish because they, by and large, are not... They don't have the same history or class character. Like, a city like London or Paris or Beijing or Tokyo, those cities are, like, thousands of years old and have continuously been occupied and they have like a much longer history of like social stratification. Whereas like North American culture is comparatively less hereditary class character and are just like younger, right? So they they haven't had time to calcify like that. Interesting. Interesting if true. I I also want to point out that the, the tradition of having a great big fantasy city with like a spectacular fantastic, unbelievable, quote-unquote, naturally occurring phenomenon is it is as old as Tolkien. Like, Minas Tirith is built right in the, like, smack dab in the middle of a gigantic, like, pointy cliff and then built in concentric rings leading up to the top of the cliff. You know, Eteras is built on on the top of a hill. I mean, I understand making it atop of a hill, but I don't know about concentric rings. I think the point is, it's fantasy. You have the license to, like, give your city cool, interesting, fantastic features. So why wouldn't you? It's a fantasy novel. Yes. Why just have it As be everyone knows, city? the best fantasy city is Mercadia from Magic the Gathering, which is built on the top of an inverted cone. What? It's, <laughs> it's built on the base of an inverted cone. So like, it's like a big triangle stuck into the ground and then at the top <laughs> on the flat part is the city. Yeah, that but rules. Of course, the real best city is the city of Sigil. That's right, the city of Doors. Everywhere and nowhere, and it's laid out on the interior of a Taurus. That's so right. So it's a wonderful, impossible geometry. It's great. Everyone should play Planescape Torment. I think it's really cool that Quoth is so accustomed to desperate hunger that he knows to a pretty good estimate how much longer he can run before he starts to actually starve. This is now like a fairly common occurrence for him or common enough in his old life that he can, you know, he, he's got a sense for it. <laughs> he knows where he is at. It's kind of a nifty reminder of the fact that Quoth is not that far away from living as like a, a homeless ragamuffin. Yes. Mm, I could go for a nice ragamuffin. Yum, That's yum, not yum. how ragamuffins work. <laughs> nice warm ragamuffin, a little bit of butter on top. Mm-hmm. They squeal when you put them in the toaster. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> okay, before you two get too off topic, there is there's a writing thing that bothers me on this page. In the sentence, the majority of the living business of the city took place in the larger portion of the city. 
at the front of this cliff aptly named the Sheer. Why is of the city in there twice? It's a little awkward. It's, I hate it. It bothers me so much. Yeah, I see why it bugs you. I Maybe uh, one of us might have copy edited that out. Like, normally I'm not bothered by the way things are written in this book, but that really bugs me. Perhaps you're, you've awakened your sleeping minds to the power of prosody. Oh boy. Uh, sure. <laughs> Why not? Why not indeed? All right, I'm out of notes. I don't know about you guys. There's so much that's still left to the imagination on this page, like... Why did he lose his clothes? And who did he have to steal these rags from? And why why was he wounded enough to need bandages? Mm-hmm. And also let us all pour one out for Quoth's wonderful cloak that Fella made him that he no longer has. Yes, very mm-hmm. upsetting. Very sad. So many pockets lost. Mm. But it's sort of a reverse inventory, so that's kind of fun. Mm. Anything he had in those pockets, he has no longer... Although we are still doing a regular inventory here because we're still doing the inventory of what he currently has vis-a-vis the loot case. Mm-hmm. And it ain't much. It's all the items that he can't sell because they're quest items, so they're like locked in his inventory. Yeah, exactly. You can't get rid of the quest items. And there's going to be like a key from the from the tutorial that he can just like never get rid of, even though he's used it and it doesn't have another use. Yeah, although that is kind of like the hourly items, isn't it? It's the quest items you get and you have no idea what they're for and you never use them. Yeah, they just sit in your in your like chest back at your home base forever. Fallout 2 had a bunch of quests that weren't finished, so you could never finish them. And the quest items would sit in your inventory. And there was one NPC who had a very obvious quest prompt, quest hook that you couldn't accomplish. So poor Sulik is forever searching for his sister. Doomed, doomed to wander the wastes. This is from... Kevin, who writes on Quoth's arrival in Ventus. Hi, pagers. I don't mind Rothfuss eliminating the travel scenes of Quoth's journey from Imra because we're rewarded immediately. His dilemma of having to get admitted to the mayor's court with almost nothing but his wits and a limited amount of time makes for great drama. I wonder if the journey's account was truncated because Quoth almost immediately overcomes all of the resulting hardships within days of arriving in Severin. I think the seemingly missing chapters of his days at sea would have come off as frustrating and unnecessary to the reader if there were no real consequences, or rather the consequences were immediately sidestepped once he arrived in Severin. Instead, we get a summary of the hardships at sea, followed by our protagonist at his best. Some of the best parts of Name of the Wind occurred when once Quoth started making his way from homelessness in Tarbine to becoming a student at the university. I see more of that same ingenuity in his arrival at the mayor's court. In both cases, he pawned his most precious possession at the time in the first book, Ben's book, and later the loot, for some much-needed cash. It's almost a shame that he's flush with funds at the end of book two. I feel like our hero is most impressive when he has the fewest resources. Thanks for all your work on the podcast. Signed, Kevin. Kevin, I concur. This may be the best-timed letter we've ever received because we're right there about to talk about this. So, well done. Well-timed. And yes, I agree that... The consequences of the hardships at sea have no real bearing on the plot, except to serve to get him there and put him in a position to make more drama, which is probably why they are cut. I wouldn't be surprised if Rothfuss actually wrote them and then had this exact same realization. I also agree. And I think that what Rothfuss does is he, instead of having those problems set up for us and then uh, sort of not, and then quote solving them, he like he doesn't go to the trouble of setting them all up for us in painstaking detail. He just opens with, 
Here's Quoth. He's down on his luck. He's had some problems. Now we get to watch him scheme his way out of that hard luck. And to that, I agree that Quoth is more interesting when he has fewer resources, which is why I think that book three will open with him losing it all. Recall that very little of his uh, wealth is in in money. Most of it comes from his deal with the Bursar, uh, and it's con- it's contingent on him dr- continuing to uh, have a uh, have a tuition at the university. So if he were to be expelled, say by the new Supreme Chancellor Hem, then his source of money would dry up, and he would be desperate once more. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, we are left with Quoth in a nice position so we get the warm fuzzies for the 10 years it takes to write book three but he loses it all at the beginning so that we have somewhere for him to go i see well but if 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 hem is supreme chancellor couldn't quoth just call for a vote of no confidence and replace him with a better chancellor a strong chancellor a new chancellor a strong chancellor oh stop it yes i suppose so as we all know this is how liberty dies to thunderous applause <laughs> and you can slaughter us like animals on tomorrow's page. Uh, <laughs> the Wait.